You're listening to East Bay Yesterday. This show is about history, but it's not stuck in the past. Let's begin. Let's begin. There was a period in the 80s, probably maybe around like 86, I was working at the Pacific Center for Human Growth at Berkeley. That's Oakland resident Len Keller. The place she was working at in the 80s, it was the Bay Area's very first LGBTQ center. And part of Len's job involved going out to San Rita Jail to give classes about safe sex. Some of the women she taught there were African-American lesbians, like her. After one of the presentations, a couple of black women came up to us and said, how do you all do it? And we said, what do you mean? They said, well, how do you be gay on the outside, meaning outside of prison walls? Because they were gay inside jail, but they did not know how to be gay in the world And this is what they told us. They said, in our communities, our families, they can accept that I may have committed a crime, I may have done a robbery or done this or that, and they can accept that. But that I'm a lesbian, that, you know, I love other women, they absolutely can't accept that. Some of them told me, they said that they felt that some of the recidivism, that the people actually did things to go back in so that they could be with the people that they love because that's the only way that they could figure out how to have their relationships. Do you remember what you told them when they, when they said that to you? Yeah, I said, well, I said, this is just how we live. We, we formed our own little communities. We lived together in households and... You know, we just kind of support each other. Those communities they formed, that's what we're talking about today. Because these women, and specifically lesbians of color, like Len, they didn't just support each other. They really changed the world. And we'll get into that, too. But here's the crazy thing. Most of this history isn't very well known, even in the East Bay, which is kind of surprising because Oakland is among the cities with the highest concentrations of lesbians in the entire country. Anyway, Lenz lived in the Bay Area since 1975, and that statistic definitely doesn't surprise her. Now, there have always been lesbians in San Francisco, and there's always been gay men in the East Bay. But yes, I would say the East Bay has always been known for having a really large lesbian population. San Francisco is famous around the world as a gay mecca, as it should be. But how many people know about the East Bay's lesbian history? One of the reasons it's relatively unknown is because it's really hard to find information. There's surprisingly little on the internet. I haven't been able to find a single book on this specific topic. And the stuff that's out there, old newsletters and other documentation, is really scattered across personal collections, university libraries, just all over the place. Fortunately, Len Keller is trying to fix this problem with a project called the Bay Area Lesbian Archives. She started collecting the artifacts that make up the core of the collection when she first moved to Berkeley more than four decades ago. I knew that what was happening was 
historical, historical. Nothing like this had ever happened before. It was a movement, and it was, it was unprecedented. Looking through the archives, the movement that Len is talking about comes alive. Flyers for protests and rallies, tons of photographs she took, meeting notes, videos. It's not just powerful to look at. There's a lot to learn from here. What happened in the 70s and 80s was so important. People were driven by a vision, not just to be accepted as lesbian and gay. Particularly lesbians, lesbians were fighting for women's rights. Most of us had come from different other kinds of movements, different kinds of progressive movements. We were trying literally to change the world. We weren't just like, oh, please accept us. So in the meantime, yes, there were all these institutions and places that we created. Around this time, lesbians were a driving force behind some of the very first rape crisis centers and domestic violence shelters and so much more too. Like, for example, having sign language interpreters at events, outside of the deaf community, lesbians ran some of the very first groups to make that a standard policy. And that makes sense if you think about it. Who's going to be more in touch to concepts of accessibility than people who are used to being discriminated against? By the end of the 1970s, there were a bunch of lesbian bars and bookstores and self-defense classes and collective houses and basically a whole thriving network. Women were coming to the Bay Area from all over the country to join this community. And they created spaces where they didn't have to be afraid anymore. For the first time in their lives, they felt safe. Like a kind of safety that's hard to imagine. Like you don't even realize how defended you are until you're in a place where you, you can kind of let it go. And so it was very profound. In a world where some women felt more free to be themselves inside of a prison, rather than in their own neighborhoods, these kinds of spaces were necessary. The story of the movement that created these spaces and so much more is way too big for one little podcast. But today, we're going to look at a slice of it through the eyes of Len Keller. And we're going to hear what she's planning to do very soon with the Bay Area Lesbian Archives and how she almost lost everything a few years ago. You're listening to East Bay Yesterday. I'm Liam O'Donoghue. Stay tuned. My father was basically functionally illiterate, not educated at all. He went to like, they were sharecroppers. Um, I think he went to like maybe third grade and he worked at a cemetery. He started off as a grave digger and he ended up being the supervisor of the cemetery. Len was raised by her dad after her mom died when she was eight. Like many black families in the 20th century, Len's folks had come up to the Chicago area from the South, seeking a better life. It wasn't easy. Around the time she was starting high school, her family's house got foreclosed. 
but her dad was determined that his kids would get the kind of good education that he never got. So after they lost their house, which had been in a racially diverse area, her dad moved the family to an apartment in an overwhelmingly white suburb. He decided that he wanted to move us there because he figured where rich people are are the best public schools, and of course he was right about that. Unfortunately for Len, there was a problem with this arrangement. We move, and I'm in a state of shock because I did, I was aware that there weren't that many black people living in the town. Len definitely learned a lot at this fancy white high school. It just maybe wasn't the education her dad was expecting. I mean, I took classes that literally like were, you know, imperialism 101. You learn about these countries. These are their natural resources. This is how you exploit. Da, 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 da. And one of my classes, I was just like really outdone because I invited this guy from South Africa. This was, of course, during the apartheid era. I knew about South Africa. I knew what was going on there. And then when the guy from South Africa was supposed to come, I tried to get some of the other kids to boycott, but they just looked at me like I was crazy. So I just didn't come to class. And of course, I got kind of in trouble for that, too. But, you know, that's the way it was. It wasn't just being a working class kid in a preppy school that made Len look at the world a little differently. My earliest memories, I remember thinking that things, something was really amiss. And I mean, some of the, the, the more conscious memories that I have have to do with being in kindergarten and noticing the whole gender setup, like, you know, looking around the room and seeing how they set up the toys, like all the boys' toys were in one section and the girls' toys were in another section, and that it, it, it really wasn't okay for you to want to play with those other toys. And I thought, even as a five-year-old, that that was utterly ridiculous. You know, I wanted to play with all the toys. Len learned early on that the people who make the rules can't always be trusted. Okay, I'll tell you a story about first grade. So this one teacher asks us to find our flesh-colored, because they used to have this color in the Crayola crayon box called flesh. I think they stopped that. That's correct. Crayola changed the name of that crayon from flesh to peach in 1962. She said, pull out your flesh-colored crayon and hold it up in the air. So I looked at my box, and I matched up a color that matched with my skin and it was some kind of brown color and I held it up. This woman was so angry. She gave me a look. If looks could kill, I would have been dead right there on the spot. I could tell this woman despised me. And let me tell you something. (laughs) That definitely was far from the last time I saw a look like that. Okay, back to high school. Living in a wealthy suburb taught Len a lot of lessons outside of the classroom as well. It gave me the opportunity to just actually meet and have some friends who were like from a class background. I mean, there was just light years between us. So this one person, her name was Mary, really, really cool person. And her family was very wealthy. One day she and another black friend of mine, we all went and we were at Mary's house hanging out. And Mary was white. And Mary's white and very wealthy. (laughs) They had all kinds of servants. You know, they had gardeners and they had a cook and cleaning people. And so one day we were were hanging out uh, and uh, we were about to run into the kitchen to grab a snack. 
And this woman, I think Eastern European woman, she was down on, you know, her knees scrubbing the kitchen floor. And myself and my other friend, Max, we stop because that's how we were taught. Like we see somebody cleaning a floor, you don't run and track up the floor while they're cleaning. So we stopped and Mary kind of kept running and she turned around, she looked at us, she says, come on, you know, we're like, and we're like nodding our heads and kind of uh, indicating, do you see this person down there cleaning the floor? And she kind of looked like, you know, she didn't quite get it at first. It took her a minute. And then she kind of, you know, shrugged her shoulders like, oh, okay. And then later we kind of explained to her, was like, Mary, you know, this lady's like cleaning the floor. Well, to her, this is all she's ever known, is there's always all these people around to, that's what they're there for. That's why they exist, is to clean up after her. So it, it didn't seem weird, but I think she thought about it and more because that was the kind of person that she was. Len and Mary ended up having a few more experiences like this that kind of popped Mary's bubble. And it wasn't the last time that Len would help somebody confront their privilege. But although Len developed consciousness around class and race issues early on, there were other things in her life that she didn't know how to wrap her head around. It was really important for me at that point to to be a normal girl and to fit in. I knew what was expected of me. And then when I got in junior high school, I was looking around and I saw how girls were expected to act. And I was like, boy, it, the older I got, the worse it was getting because it was like, you're really not acting like that. You're not acting right. You're not caring about makeup. You're not caring around that Seventeen magazine. Len had always been what would now be called gender nonconforming. As she grew out of the phase when it was acceptable to be a so-called tomboy, her preferences started causing more and more problems. It was starting to get really stressful. The pressure to date boys. And the thing is, is that I liked boys. A lot of my friends were boys. I played with the boys. I played sports. We rode bikes. I fell out of many of a tree. Got into a lot of little adventures and mischief. I like playing with the boys. I've always liked playing with boys. But I didn't want to kiss boys. To me, it was gross. At the same time, she was trying to suppress thoughts about the people she did want to kiss. On the flip side, wouldn't allow myself to fantasize about girls in that way. But I was becoming more and more aware that I was feeling a certain way around girls. I'd get really excited. My heart would beat really fast. I'd get really nervous. All that kind of stuff. I know the feelings. Yeah, I'm sure you do. <laughs> I had the same feelings <laughs> around girls feeling really awkward yeah. and weird. Like, oh my God, there she is. Oh my God, I'm going to run away. All the pressure to fit in and be normal. It just caused more stress. Lynn knew that she couldn't follow the path that was expected of her. Every time I tried to imagine myself going to a college and being in a dorm, it just brought up a lot of anxiety for me. As it was, I became very anxious, whatever. I mean, I tried to avoid locker room situations because I was always afraid I was going to get caught staring at some girl's breasts or something. So I would avoid the locker room. High school was really hard, 
but Len was determined to finish. One of the things that helped her get across the finish line was having an escape plan. Definitely my last year, I know I was severely depressed. And all I did was pretty much read all these, like what we used to call them underground newspapers and magazines, me and my best friend, and plot our escape. In fact, they had this song, we gotta get out of this place. And that was one of our theme songs. Anyway, anything that was talking about escape <laughs> and uh, a better society. I mean, I was a hippie and I was a black militant. <laughs> I was all of that, all in one. And um, we wanted to see a different world. It was just that simple. We wanted to be a part of building a different world. We wanted to live in a different kind of world than the one that we had grown up in and that they were showing to us as the ideal. We gotta get out of this place If it's the last thing we ever do We gotta get out of this place Girl, there's a better life for me and you Glenn graduated high school in 1969, and as an aspiring black militant hippie, she got out of the suburbs as quickly as possible. My friend and I got on a Greyhound bus and went to New York. Len and her friend's first encounter at the bus terminal was not surprising. A very, very friendly guy offered to uh, show them around. And I immediately got very suspicious because it sounded very much like what I had read about in Malcolm X's autobiography and Claude Brown's Man Child in the Promised Land. And literally those books saved our ass. So I turned around to my friend. I said, well, excuse me, I got to, you know, consult with my friend here. So we, we turned around and I said, that guy sounds like one of those, uh, what do you call them? Uh, pimps. She goes, yeah, yeah, he's got bad vibes, bad vibes. They shook the pimp pretty quick and were soon squatting in a vacant building up in Harlem. I've got to throw a trigger warning out here because something bad happened after she moved into this squat with some guys who she described as activists. I spent a lot of time interviewing Len, and sometimes before she would tell me things, she'd make me turn off my recorder so she could think things through and decide if she wanted to have them on the record or not. The week we did this part of the interview was right when the Harvey Weinstein case was blowing up and the news was dominated by stories of women speaking up about sexual assault and abuse. Len decided to tell her story too. We had taken two different rooms, my friend and I, in this building, and we became the target of these guys. Uh, they planned to rape us. And I was actually raped. I went and told some of the other people about it after it happened. The guys, to tell you the truth, weren't that sympathetic. They weren't. Nothing was really done about it until this same guy raped one of their girlfriends. And then they found the guy, beat him up, and chased him away. Things got better for Len after that. Her and her friend left the squat after they were sort of adopted by this group of black bohemian artists and writers who let them move in. These guys gave them food and a place to stay and basically acted as their big brothers. One of the guys, who was a pretty accomplished photographer, even gave Len a camera and taught her how to shoot. 
but it couldn't last forever. After a while, Len moved back to the Chicago area, had a baby, and met her first girlfriend. Also, she came out as a lesbian. This was like spring 1974. I was ecstatic. I felt, I mean, truly liberated. Like, wow, it was, it was huge. I just felt like, oh my God, it was such a huge burden. And when I came out, I felt so happy. Unfortunately, her friends were not supportive. They were horrified. They stopped talking to Len immediately. This time, she decided to leave the Midwest for good. So I moved to California in 1975, landed in Santa Cruz, and was just completely blown out of the water because the community there was so vibrant. The dykes there were just, they were into everything. They were mechanics, they were uh, doing construction. I mean, it was during this time when women were really about, look, we could do these things. At least we're going to try to do things that we've always been told our whole lives that we can't do, not supposed to do, etc. So there were just all kinds of amazing things going on, and I was I'm very impressed. The only thing that I found problematic was that it was very white. <laughs> and my daughter was about to start school, and I decided I can't do this to my daughter. After living briefly in San Francisco, Len decided that the East Bay would be a better place to raise her daughter. When she found a spot to live in Berkeley with a bunch of other lesbians, she found what she was looking for. And not just because it was so affordable. Oh my God, rent was so cheap in those days. The house that we lived in, there were two flats. And we lived in the upper flat. And it was really big because there were like five bedrooms. And um, our rent was like $175 for the entire flat. What she found was women. Women who were like her. Everybody had that kind of story, pretty much, with very few exceptions. Just being rejected by family and friends, which is another thing which made our communities very tight. And why lesbians, all across, wherever they were, Bay Area, wherever, created a lot of support spaces for each other and created like little families. We tended to live in collective households. They were kind of surrogate families because people had lost their families. We, you know, we, we took a lot of care, especially like, like around holidays and stuff like that, to have these big collective situations where everybody had some place to go. Yeah, that was real, uh, real important. I mean, we were coming out of an era when people were being electroshocked. I think in 1973 in the DSMR, you know, our status went from being pathological to being okay. The DSM is the American Psychiatric Association's Guide to Mental Disorders. That decision to declassify homosexuality as an illness came about after activists interrupted a psychiatry conference in San Francisco to challenge that status. The change was important because some doctors have been trying to quote-unquote cure homosexuality with electroshock therapy, sometimes even electrocuting people's genitals. 
People were even lobotomized. And while this torture was legal, same-sex relationships were illegal. In California, that law didn't change until 1976. And police raids of gay bars still happened occasionally, even after that. Up until about the late 1960s, the only groups really fighting for gay rights were part of something called the homophile movement. But then social revolution started bubbling up and everything changed. The new generation wanted what they called gay liberation and thought the homophile people were too cautious, that they weren't challenging the system enough. There was a group called Gay Women's Liberation, for example. They were one of the first, and they were more inspired by the Black Panthers than the older, more middle-class homophile organizations. A lot of lesbians in the 70s came from other movements. There was a very prominent back-to-the-land movement. There was hippies. There was very radical political stuff going on, like SDS. And there was all these liberation movements going on, you know, in Africa, all over, because all these countries had been colonized. So people were coming from all of that, from civil rights, from black power movement. People were coming who had been very involved in all those different things were all kind of converging. And, and, they, and part of the reason why they started kind of taking their energies a little bit away from some of those other movements is because they were still experiencing a lot of oppression as women and as lesbians within those movements. Because I experienced that. I was very involved with black liberation movements, and there was it was you know, rampant with sexism and misogyny. Two quick things. There was also a lot of sexism and homophobia on the left among whites and Latinos and Asians too. It wasn't just an African-American problem, of course. And also, in 1970, the Black Panthers became the first major black organization to support gay rights. After getting out of jail, Huey Newton published a famous letter calling for, quote, unity with homosexual groups. And he told people to get over their insecurities and stop using homophobic, sexist language. But the point is that pretty much everywhere in society, there was still a lot of very unwoke attitudes. Len was part of the wave of women that decided they weren't going to put up with it anymore. They were going to do something about it. We were acutely aware that we were oppressed as women. There's this term that's kind of a mouthful, but it's a really important concept, prefigurative politics. It means trying to actually create the kind of future you want to live in. Like, instead of just fighting bad things, creating good things. Prefigurative politics was a big part of the lesbian movement. We were very committed to creating supports for ourselves and other women in as many ways as we could. There were like health clinics, bookstores and cafes and place, support places, places where people could be to just find community. The Rape Crisis Center, uh, SF War. The war in SF War stands for Women Against Rape. La Casa de las Madres. Many of these places, the, the founders were lesbians. This was just a very important issue in the community. People were very committed to uh, making sure that women had safe places. And it wasn't just about comforting women who had already been assaulted. Some took it a step further. 
Now, I'm not saying that this is necessarily right or wrong, <laughs> but there were brigades of women who would find out about rapists, find them, and deal with them. Len got involved with things as soon as she got here. Berkeley was one of the first cities in America to have a recycling program, and this new industry was how she supported her activism and found a wider community. That was one of my first jobs when I first got here, was working at one of the recycling centers, and I met a bunch of people there. Around this time, there were a ton of lesbian collectives in the East Bay. One house on Terrace Street in North Oakland was an organizing base for several big projects. The Women's Press Collective, the Lesbian Mothers Union, a feminist bookstore called A Woman's Place. Another house turned itself into a grassroots clinic called the Oakland Feminist Women's Health Center. The Bay Area's first LGBT center opened in Berkeley in 1973, and Len landed there a few years later. I plugged into the Pacific Center, the Pacific Center for Human Growth, which was basically a mental health uh, service, which really evolved through the years. At that point, it was mostly like peer counseling. They had a crisis switchboard, which was really needed in those days. And calls were coming in from everywhere. And so it was staffed by volunteers. Out of this culture of trying to make people feel safe and welcome, there came a lot of ideas that ended up spreading throughout society. The women's groups who helped turn a lot of these things into standard practices don't usually get credit, but they deserve it. One of the things that came out of this whole new kind of ideal was trying to make sure that needs were being met. For example, you look at a flyer and typically you see that there was childcare available whether it was like a political event or a dance or a performance, there was childcare. There were usually signers for the deaf. Let's see, sliding scale so that, it, you know, there was a lot of class consciousness to so that everybody had equal access. And it, it was very common to see on a flyer all of those things, you know, that it was wheelchair accessible. All of that was pointing to uh, behind the scenes, all of this thinking and processing about making sure that everybody was taken care of. I mean, that's just a very different mindset. It's not just, you know, what's our bottom line. It would be inaccurate to say that everything was kumbaya all the time. There were a lot of political disagreements. Collectives split or imploded. There was infighting. Anybody who's ever been involved in a community of really passionate people knows how these things go. One thing at the core of a lot of these conflicts was race. To put it simply, a lot of aspects of the lesbian community were dominated by white women. At this particular juncture, people of color in terms of the, within the context of the, the LGBTQ community were just starting to really have their own kind of advocacy, really, as people of color. Because prior to that, we were just kind of absorbed within, and there were a lot of things that were going on that, that 
was not being addressed. These things range from black women always being mistaken for each other at parties. You know, like, aren't you? No, I'm the other black lesbian. To discrimination at bars. To issues involving the criminal justice system. Lots of stuff. Anyway, around this time, some of the very first lesbian of color groups started forming. One of them was called Hente. Hente was really dynamite. They were this very unusual kind of softball team. They were kind of a cross between a, a lesbian softball team and the Black Panthers. They had a, a, a 10-point program. They were very political. And they actually formed because they wanted, because many of them had played on softball teams for bars. And usually they were very kind of isolated, so it was sort of like a couple of lesbians of color here and a couple of lesbians of color there. And then it seemed like any time there were three or more of us gathered in one space that it be we became so threatening. Uh, so that was sort of like a level of awareness that they were trying to bring to the lesbian community. Like, look, why are you getting so threatened if there's like three or four of us hanging out together? And why do you think people were getting threatened? Well, people were getting threatened because they had unconscious racism. I mean, why would you be fearful because you see four, four women of color together? Why? You know, that's just unconscious shit. I mean, people grow up with that. Everybody learned this stuff. It's not like they were horrible, terrible people, but we all, this is what we learned, in the, you know, in the United States of America and everywhere else. But uh, that's what you learn. Everybody grows up with that. So unless you grew up around people of color, you're probably going to be afraid of them until you get a little experience and find out they're not going to tear your head off or, you know, and cut you up in little bitty pieces or whatever your, your imaginings are. Even within the refuge of the Bay Area queer scene, everything was a struggle. So whatever you heard about gay liberation, that was code for white gay men. If you saw something in the media if they chose to cover it in Newsweek or Time, you're going to see an image of some white gay men on the cover. One example of this relates to the first gay pride parades in San Francisco. Back then, they were called Gay Freedom Day parades. Len pulled out something from the archives to show me what she was talking about. So this, it's a photograph that a friend of mine took. I'm in the photograph and one of my housemates is in the photograph, and this was like 1976. And we're holding this big, I don't know, what do you call it? Kind of a poster. And it says, no more power to white male supremacists, straight or gay. Lesbians was, were actually at a point where we were, pro, we were going to the gay freedom parade to insist that we be included, that lesbians be included. So it wasn't always, you know, the GLBT or LGBT. It started off gay, meeting gay white males, and had to become more inclusive as we went through the years, only because people got out there and said, we want to be included. Len pulled out something else from the archives to show how they'd made some serious progress by the end of the decade in terms of gaining recognition and getting organized. I have this poster, it's called Becoming Visible, and it was the first black lesbian conference. This happened in 1980, and it was a pretty huge conference, and it was at the Women's Building. During this era, 
lesbian of color groups were involved in everything from stopping an initiative that would have blocked LGBTQ people from teaching jobs to supporting Central American refugees. Instead of being ignored or told they couldn't participate, they started their own groups and they became leaders. Okay, before we get to the last section of this episode, I just wanna say stay tuned for the credits because I'm gonna be sharing some info on how to support the Bay Area Lesbian Archives. The website will be launching soon, like next month, and there are a lot of ways to help out. And also, I'll be sharing some photos of the things we're talking about in this episode on social media. So make sure you're following East Bay Yesterday on Facebook, Twitter, and or Instagram. There's links to all those pages at eastbayyesterday.com. Okay, back to the show. Even though Len and her friends were really focused on fighting for all these important social justice causes, they were also having a really good time. We always either had a band <laughs> and food. <laughs> you know, it wasn't just like you come to an event and have somebody stand up there and preach at you about, you know, what we need to do. She's talking about how the fundraisers and conferences were also a good excuse to get together and party, or at least just hang out. Remember, there was always free childcare provided at these types of things. And besides organizing and documenting these events, Len was also part of the entertainment. She played tenor saxophone. I was in a band, actually. It was an all-women salsa band called Herencia del Caribe. And when they really wanted to take a break from the politics, there were a bunch of lesbian bars scattered throughout the Bay Area. All these different spots, they had their own flavor and their own culture. There was the Bacchanal up in Albany on Solano and Ollie's on 42nd and Telegraph in Oakland. Down in Hayward, the Driftwood was a dive that was owned by some former roller derby ladies from the Bay Area Bombers. It could get a little rough. Sometimes stuff went down. People were willing to, you know, get into it. One of Len's favorite spots was right here in the town. The Jubilee, on the other hand, which was in East Oakland, it, it was definitely more old school, kind of butch femmes kind of scene, but with a lot, lot more women of color. There was a lot of black women that went to it, but it was very mixed. There were white women that hung out there too. And I mean, you know, this, all of them old school. To the point where there literally was a peephole at the door. So it wasn't like you just rolled up and just opened the door and just strolled on in. You had to like, I think there was a little doorbell that you rang, um, if my memory serves me correctly, and somebody would look at you with the peephole and if you look like, oh, okay, okay. Then they let, then you, yeah, you got the thumbs up and they'd open up the door and let you in. Remember that even up through the 1970s, gay and lesbian bars had to worry about police raids. I met some women who told me that they had met there in the early 60s, and that was kind of like their home away from home. They would uh, get off from work, pick up a little food, bring it to the Jubilee, and hang out. The other patrons were like, almost like family members. 
Stories of places like the Jubilee are exactly what Len is hoping to collect and preserve and share with the Bay Area Lesbian Archives. The whole project started back when she first moved here. I just started collecting little things here and there. I mean, we lived in a collective household. We were all very involved in different things, and we'd go to events, and there was always stuff up all over, flyers and posters and uh, postcards and buttons and stuff. And so I just thought, oh, that seems like this stuff is important. I'll, I guess I'll just hang on to it. She also saved meeting notes and took tons of photographs, and there's video and audio recordings too. The archives now fill several big filing cabinets. And a lot of this history, there's absolutely nothing about it on the internet, which makes this next part even scarier. Due to some really serious health issues, Len almost lost everything. Fast forward to the early 2000s, I became ill, became homeless for a time, there was, a, there was one period when I had my stuff in storage and it became threatened. So I started really realizing how important this stuff was and that I absolutely could not lose it. And that process of saving the stuff um, led to many conversations, which eventually led to me making the decision to found this archives. The project has already started growing beyond Len's collection as more donated materials are coming in. An official website will hopefully be launching next month. And then the vision is for the archives to move into a physical space that will be open to the public. There's obviously a lot of historical value to these materials, but there's a practical side too. This stuff is still relevant. Here we are in 2017 and we're still fighting for really basic rights for women. And of course, what happened here in the 70s and 80s and 90s, the lessons from this era are applicable to other groups beyond lesbians who are still dealing with all kinds of bullshit and just trying to live their lives the way they want to live them. There's a lot of still discrimination, particularly against those LGBTQ folks who are gender non-conforming. And if you're out and about in the world and you're trying to get a job, trying to get a place to live, et cetera, et cetera, this can work against you. So even though we've made these gains, this is still very active and it's still very much a problem. And I don't think the war has been won. And when I say we're vulnerable, I think we're still very vulnerable. We still have to, each one of us individually, come up with strategies for how we're going to survive and navigate the society. Thanks for listening to East Bay Yesterday. I've been your host, Liam O'Donoghue. Before we get into the shout outs for this episode, I just want to let you all know I've got a few events coming up that I'm really excited about. One is going to be at the Oakland Public Library. I'll be talking with Dorothy Lazard and Kathleen DiGiovanni, who you may know from the library's amazing history room. And the other event is going to be at the Good Hop Bar during Beer Week. I'm going to be talking about local beer history or something like that. Anyway, to find out the details about those events, 
Make sure you follow East Bay Yesterday on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. There's links to all those at eastbayyesterday.com. On those social media pages, I'll also be posting information about how you, yes you, can support the Bay Area Lesbian Archives. If you have materials to donate or a financial contribution to make, I'll be posting web links, email addresses, phone numbers, everything you'll need to get plugged into this amazing project that will be launching soon. This is a super grassroots effort, so every little bit helps. Okay, on to the shoutouts. First, I want to thank my friend Zeph Fish. A few months ago, Zeph was giving me a tattoo, and we were talking about story ideas, and Zeph was like, you know, there's this person that I met through the anti-eviction mapping project that you should really talk to. So, big thanks to Zeph for putting me in touch with Len, and big thanks to the anti-eviction mapping project for all the really important work that you guys do. Also, Emily Hobson, who wrote a great book called Lavender and Red, and Barbara Hoke, who wrote a really informative article about the history of Bay Area lesbian bars. You can subscribe to East Bay Yesterday on iTunes, SoundCloud, Stitcher, or Google Play. Please, please, please help spread the word about this show. And if you give East Bay Yesterday a shout out on social media, be sure to tag it and review it on iTunes too. That really, really helps. Music for this episode was provided by Tabin Anatech. Oakland-based producer Imani Atlantic. You can check out her stuff on Bandcamp. That's Imani Atlantic. The Animals and Lobo Loco. The theme song music came from Anatech. Thanks again for listening. I'll be back soon with another episode. And one more thing. Men, don't ever, ever be this dude. I remember one time I was walking down the street, this guy kept harassing me, kept harassing me. He kept saying, you know, all kinds of stupid shit. Then he was saying shit like, oh, you know, can I walk with you? And I'm like, well, you already are. So, <laughs> so then he says, he says, oh, well, you must be one of those women's livers. Like, that was such a terrible thing. It's like, oh, yeah, I was such a horrible person. <laughs> you know, that I would believe in my own freedom and liberation. Boy, that makes me such a weird, fucked up woman.